Reflections on Homer's Iliad by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 7 We have enough things to deal with without me bringing in the Old Testament and Ovid, but I'd like to bring in those two to to begin today to to get a slant uh, on a very uh, strange and disturbing uh, and very obvious fact that occurs in this poem and occurs in a lot of uh, stories and myths about us, about the human condition that, that we've accommodated ourselves to a little bit too readily. And that is that this poem convulses with violence and blood at the part we'll be looking at today. I want to come around, in a roundabout way and take a look at that and, and use some of the to, uh, interpretive tools that we've already used in looking at earlier aspects of the poem. But I'd like to begin by quoting a brief passage from Second Kings. I select this passage almost at random uh, in, in terms of its goriness, uh, but uh, there's another dynamic to it that parallels the situation in the Iliad. Just prior to the time that the, this passage in Second Kings is, is speaking of, there had been a long, 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 vicious hostility between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah and the northern kingdom. And uh, this, had, this hostility had broken out time and again in, in overt violence, but in the interim seethed with the latent violence. The two kingdoms were quite separate in that sense, but at the same time they worshipped the same God, sort of like Northern Ireland. They had the same basic value system, similar to the Greeks and the Trojans, recognizing the same deities, uh, recognizing the same heroic code, the same value system, and so on. But still in all, a vicious kind of civil war going on uh, between them. And the hostilities are finally put away, and a reconciliation is effected by King Josiah of Judah, of the southern kingdom, and he visits on the northern kingdom his uh, just violence, as the book of Kings understands it, and uh, so I'd like to quote just the story about the culmination of, his, of, of the feuding, the way that Josiah deals with this. Now, since it is a biblical text, you can imagine, if you'd like, that I'm preaching this from a pulpit. And then you, you know, one of the homiletic techniques is to, is to read a passage and then pick out a sentence from that passage and develop the homily around that sentence as the, as for the force of the homily. So if you, you want to pretend like that, you can try to imagine which sentence I'm going to pick out. And I bet you don't get it. Here it is. As he looked around, Josiah saw the tombs there on the hillside. He had the bones fetched from the tombs and burned them on the altar. Thus he desecrated it, in accordance with the word of Yahweh, which the man of God had proclaimed when Jeroboam was standing by the altar at the time of the feast. As he looked around, Josiah caught sight of the tomb of the man of God who had foretold these things. What is that monument, I see, he asked. The townspeople replied, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and foretold what you have done to the altar. Let him rest, the king said, and let no one disturb his bones. So they left his bones untouched with the bones of the prophet who was from Samaria. Josiah also did away with all the temples of the high places that the kings of Israel had built in the towns of Samaria, provoking the anger of Yahweh. He treated these places exactly as he had treated the one at Bethel. All the priests of the high places who were there 
he slaughtered on the altars, and on those altars burned human bones. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Well, the line I would like to preach on is, <laughs> and then he returned to Jerusalem. Taking that line not as a geographical reference, but as a cultural one. Then the culture was reconvened, was reunited around its central city, the symbol of its unity. Then he returned to Jerusalem and the people of Israel were a people again. And was the slaughter on the altars there merely incidental to that reunification and reconstitution of the cultural unanimity? Well, that's, that's the question we've touched on before. There's a passage later in today's material, which we'll dwell on the overall scene a little bit later. Achilles is chasing Hector around the wall of Troy. And Homer puts in these beautiful passages, as he do, does occasionally, to remind us of the, of, of the human condition. And in that place, he says this, They passed the lookout point, the wild fig tree with wind in all its leaves, then veered away along the curving wagon road and came to where the double fountains well, the source of eddying Scamander, that's the river on the plains of Troy, a divine name of it is Xanthos, and the mortals call it Scamander. To a double fountain they passed there, the source of the Scamander. We have just learned, by the way, just prior to this, the Scamander has, has become a blood river. It has swollen and become a blood river. So right after we identify the Scamander as a river that periodically swells to become a blood river and then under certain proper conditions subsides to become the river of fertility and everything else. We have a Scamander identified as that, as a kind of symbol for the cultural cycle itself. Then it says the Scamander has a source, and the source is a hidden source, a double, double fountain. One hot spring flows out, and from the water fumes arise as though from fire burning. But the other, even in summer, gushes chill as hail or snow or crystal ice frozen on water. Near these fountains are the wide washing pools of smooth laid stone where Trojan wives and daughters laundered their smooth linen in the days of peace before the Achaeans came. Past these the two men ran. Beautiful story of what Homer does of introducing us to the pathos of peaceful life that was there and is no longer there because of the war. But notice the wives and daughters washing by the stream, downstream, much downstream from this more disturbing and paradoxical source. Downstream from that source, domesticity takes place. Ordinary cultural life, daily life takes place. Peaceful, placid daily activities take place. At the source of that stream, is a hidden, thonic, perplexing source of both things. Source of, if you will allow me, by the way, fire is always associated in this poem with war, and one of these is hot as fire is, like fire burning, and one is cool and pleasant, 
this source, this hidden source, this double source of the cultural river, which has just swollen into blood and then subsided, is a source of both peace and war, both a source of the blessings and a source of the curse. What if we were to dis discover that peace and war have the same source? That would be a troubling discovery, wouldn't it? A certain kind of peace now, a certain kind of peace. What passes for peace? The uh, Pentagon has a term called permanent pre-hostilities. Well, I didn't make that up. That's a term that's, that was used by one of the Pentagon wordsmiths one time, permanent pre-hostility. Well, there's that kind of peace and, and, and war have the same source. Okay, I would like to use once again, you know, I've tried throughout in the Timonos work to avoid reduction, that is to say, re re avoid a Freudian reduction or a Jungian reduction, uh, re avoid reducing the text to a commentary on this or that uh, theoretician's ideas. And I continue to try to avoid that, uh, but you will notice I've been using René Girard's work a little more than I tend to use one critic's work. But I simply can't avoid it. His insights into the kind of thing we're studying in the Iliad are so helpful and they have so shaped my appreciation of the poem that it would be plagiarism for me not to give him credit for some of these insights. So I want to review for a second the a basic premise of Girard's work, which is behind a great deal of scholarship on his part. The premise is that cultures are founded on a generative or foundational act of violence, a murder or a purge or a um, persecution, a bloodletting, which is immediately and thereafter continually sublimated by the mythological layers as the story is retold and made to fit into more moral sensibility. But still in all, in order for that cultural culture that, that began with the generative act of violence to maintain its coherence, that is to say, to benefit from the unanimity generated by that act of violence, the act of violence must be continually reenacted liturgically or ritually. And that is the way in which the gravitational pull of that original act is, continues to work on the social order. When, in spite of that, it begins to lose that gravitational field, a crisis develops. Girard calls it the, the sacrificial crisis. That is to say, its chief feature being the crisis of distinctions. Those forms, cultural forms, that inform us as to who we are, what we are to do, dissolve away. I happened to hear on the radio yesterday, this just popped into my head, a funny thing. I don't know who it was. Somebody talking about Superman, who's fifty now, I guess. Super, the, the character is now fifty, and this person who's talking about it said, "Well, you know, it's a very bad time for Superman, because uh, when Superman first came on the scene, it was absolutely clear what the perfect American hero should do." And this man said. For instance, if Superman were here right now, would he or would he not be delivering arms to the Contras? He said, it's a bad time for Superman because we simply don't know the answer to these questions. Well, that is a symptom of the decay of distinctions. 
uh, a confusion begins to set in. The culture begins to be at odds with itself. And we lose a sense of distinctions. Andy Warhol said, we're now in an age where everybody gets to be famous for 15 minutes. That's a symptom of that. The witches at the beginning of, of, of Macbeth say, fair is foul and foul is fair. At the beginning of Hamlet, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Some kind of the... Oh, the symptom, the perennial symptom of the problem is, quote, the old standards aren't being adhered to. And then the social organism begins to grope unconsciously for the locale of the problem and for someone or something or some group of people who represent that problem who can then be purged from the community in one way or another. Now, in the passage I just quoted from the Iliad, there's this, it, it had to do with the source, a cultural source which was a stream. There's another story about that, and I, that's the Ovid story. And it's the story about Cadmus. Cadmus is a city founder, and we're interested now in foundational acts of violence that uh, give rise to cultural forms. And so Cadmus is the founder of Thebes. And here's the story from Ovid of uh, how it came to be. An ancient wood to spoilers acts unknown. By the way, this is the A.E. Watts translation. An ancient wood to spoilers acts unknown. That is to say, something primordial. This is before any consciousness is brought to bear on this thing. So we're, we're, getting, a, we're getting a picture of the, of the primordial thing itself. An ancient wood to spoilers acts unknown conceals a cave by bending boughs o'ergrown where nature's stonework forms an archway low and copious streams from founts unfailing flow. So we have another source of these streams. Deep in this haunt, a snake of Mars lived there. Mars, the god of war. A snake of Mars. This is a, really a dragon. And now listen to how the snake of Mars is described in its primordial, thonic, hidden form. A golden-crested beauty past compare with venom-bloated bulk and eyes aglow. Now compare those two images. A golden-crested beauty past compare with venom-bloated bulk and eyes aglow. Unconsciously, the blessings and the disasters have the same source. The peace and the war has the same source. Not the peace that passes understanding, but the peace that covers its source event in mystifications. And then he goes on, to, Ovid goes on, and three, and three forked tongue and teeth in triple row, living on the corpses of dead bodies. Within the wood, he, Cadmus, sees the snake in sprawling conquest on the dead, licking their loathsome wounds with lips blood red. Do we need to know what this snake of Mars is eating, is feeding on. Cadmus strikes the dragon with his weapon 
angry by nature, angry now with cause, instead of the dragon. And he's now in his, now that he's wounded, while reeks his mouth like sticks, the river of hell, what issues there with black miasma taints the poisoned air? It's like the ink that the octopus puts out. The air is filled with this mystification. And Cadmus kills the dragon. Well, that's nice. That's good. Now, while the victor's measuring eye surveyed the vanquished foe and all his length displayed, he heard a voice that spoke a sudden word. The source was hidden, yet the speech was heard. Agenor's son, that shape which now you view, yourself shall be, so men shall gaze on you. He shook with fear, his sense and color fled, his hair stood stiff on end with icy dread. But Pallas, Pallas Athena, See, descending from the sky with counsel and encouragement is nigh, and bids him stir the soil and sow beneath seeds of a future race, the serpent's teeth. So tracing furrows with the plow pressed firm, he sows as bid the teeth, the mortal germ, soon past belief, some impulse move the, moves the, ro- the rose, and from the furrows first a spear point shows, then helms appear, nodding with painted crest, then shoulders rise to view, then plated breast, then arms with weighty tools of war, and then the full-grown crop, a bucklered breed of men. So now the dragon is dismembered and manifold and is now a army. Cadmus by now was arming in surprise to see, as he supposed, fresh foes arise. When, stay, one shouted from the earth-born brood, keep your sword, hold off from civil feud. Then, while the speaker laid one brother low, he took at longer range another's blow, and he that slew him drew not longer breath, but shared himself his short-lived brother's death. Civil war between the troops. And as through all the band the bloodlust spread, the new-raised host by mutual hands fell dead. Now while still warm, these warriors of a day were writhing on their mother's reddened clay, from all the host were five survivors found. And one, Echion, flung his arms to ground and warned by Pallas, urged that strife should cease. And with his brethren made a pact of peace, and soon the Tririan exile had their aid to found his city as Apollo bad. So there's the founding of the city. And Josiah returned to Jerusalem. Okay, we don't have time to comment on all the interesting details in that story except to say <coughs> that it is a dark and thonic and Janus-faced origin of cultural life, that dragon's lair, and that it has to do with overcoming what is in the first instance an episode of reciprocal violence. Okay. In book 20 of the Iliad, 
all hell breaks loose. Zeus finally says, Zeus who has been, who has been uh, uh, more or less keeping the lid on things by keeping the, the, the uh, deities uh, reined in, finally says to them, you may all go down and take whatever side you'd like. And the text says, Zeus says in the text, go into action, side with men of Troy or with Achaeans as each has a mind to do. And then the text goes on to say, Lord Zeus fell silent then, but kindled bitter war. All the gods now have the okay to enter the fray with all their might. Athena shrieked, and her adversary Ares yelled across from her. The gods have always in this poem sponsored the violence, but now it is absolutely out in the open. The deities are sponsoring the carnage. But this is something that has been there all along, only now it's simply run amok. In his study of Homer, Mark Edwards, who wrote a book called Homer, the Poet of the Iliad, midway in his book makes this simple point in one of his studies, always be the best and superior to others. This sums up the heroic code. Everybody at this point in the poem is now at each other's throats in a very vicious way. And of course, Achilles is the representative example. But the hostility ha has been incubating all the while. It incubates in human societies all the time. The heroic code, like our own cultural code, is premised on a certain uh, tolerable amount of constant competition. What keeps the competition from breaking out into open hostility is the existence of universally accepted cultural standards, distinctions, we can be competitive to this degree, but not more because then it threatens a culture to which if it stays below that threshold, it is a benign force. Some think a, even a beneficial force. Okay, So the competition is there, and the difference between a merely competitive and more or less well-running cultural order and one that is in civil war is that the, is that the cultural formalities and distinctions that keep the competition benign have dissolved and it is more hostile. I'm going to read uh, a couple of passages from René Girard today. This is a passage that deals with that. Rivalry does not arise because of the fortuitous convergence of two desires on the same object. Rather, the subject desires the object because the rival desires it. Now, you'll remember this poem is based on both Menelaus and Paris wanting Helen, both Achilles and Agamemnon wanting Briseis, both Achilles and Agamemnon wanting uh, uh, cultural preeminence, both Achilles and Agamemnon wanting the best prizes from the war. Okay? It, rivalry does not arise because of the fortuitous convergence of two desires on a single object. Rather, the subject desires the object because the rival desires it. In desiring an object, the rival alerts the subject to the desirability of the object. The rival then serves as a model for the subject, not only in regard to such secondary matters as style and opinions, but also and more essentially in regard to desires. 
When modern theorists envisage man as a being who knows what he wants or who at least possesses an unconscious that knows for him, they may simply have failed to perceive the domain in which human uncertainty is most extreme. Once his basic needs are satisfied, indeed sometimes even before, man is subject to intense desires, though he may not know precisely for what. The reason is that he desires being, something he himself lacks and which some other person seems to possess. The subject thus looks to that other person to inform him of what he should desire in order to acquire that being. Desire itself is essentially mimetic. That is to say, it's imitative. Directed toward an object desired by the model. This is no news to Madison Avenue, is it not? The mimetic quality of childhood desire is universally recognized. Adult desire is virtually identical, except that, most strikingly in our own culture, the adult is generally ashamed to imitate others for fear of revealing his lack of being. The adult likes to assert his independence and to offer himself as a model to others. <laughs> he invariably falls back on the formula, imitate me in order to conceal his own lack of originality. Two desires converging on the same object are bound to clash. Thus, mimesis, coupled with desire, leads automatically to conflict. Okay. Mimetic rivalry. Mimetic rivalry is happening all the while. The cultural form puts some context on mimetic rivalry. There's a place for it. There's a threshold to it. There's a limit to it. The cultural forms, the crisis of distinction happens, which is another way of saying the sacrificial crisis happens, and suddenly what was a relatively benign mimetic rivalry becomes open hostility. Exactly what happened with Achilles and Agamemnon over Briseis and over the prizes that Agamemnon brings back from the war. Once broken out into open hostility... The search is on for the lightning rod who might become the locale or the focus for that now random violence. A one who could be eliminated with the violence and therefore restore some kind of order. One of the natural candidates for that role would be the source of violence. In this poem, the source of wrath. The one of the obvious candidates for the for the person who is the who will who will personify the problem of a, of a threatening violence is Achilles. He is in fact the source of it. And there is in this, this text a couple of places, and I want to I want to read one where we see almost the the text almost opens up for us to see that possibility. It's sublimated that Achilles might be the sacrificial victim. The text almost opens up for us to see that possibility. It's sublimated that Achilles might be the sacrificial victim. Achilles, in the midst of his aristia, which we're witnessing in this part of the poem, is described in the following way. Achilles now came up like a fierce lion that a whole countryside is out to kill. He comes heedless at first, 
But when some yeoman puts a spear into him, he gapes and crouches, foam on his fangs, his mighty heart within him groans as he lashes both flanks with his tail, urging his valor on to fight. He glares and bounds ahead, hoping to make a kill or else himself perish in the tumult. That was the way Achilles' heart and spirit drove him to meet Aeneas. A little image here that Achilles is hunted by everyone. Everyone is out to kill him. It's hinted at and then sublimated. He cannot be sacrificed. He is the main military machine for the Greek side. He is too essential to the immediate cause at hand to be the sacrificial victim. Someone else will have to be found who can be sacrificed. Someone, however, who carries the mark of Achilles. The mark of Achilles is his armor. Who carries it? Hector. That will work fine. That will do. But notice, it could be, it could go either way. That's the point. It's a very fragile, volatile, and electric situation. The way a mob can suddenly turn and go in a different direction. The locus of this violence that is to be surgically removed could at any moment rebound on Achilles. We've been talking, this poem's all about glory. So much of this is about winning glory. The word glory is kudos. Achilles is awed, is held in awe by his contemporaries for his power. This is in the context in which mimetic rivalry is functioning. Part of that awe, or an, another aspect of that awe in which Achilles is held, is an unconscious resentment. Because he is, though God is born, still immortal, and therefore still in the competitive mix. So he is held in awe, but there is an unconscious resentment as well. Now, he can keep that resentment sublimated and keep the awe totally dominant by continually reasserting his kudos, his glory. If he were to be wounded, to falter, to look like he's losing his, his power, then things could turn like that and he could be the scapegoat because he is really more, he's closer to the source of the problem than anybody else in the Greek camp. In order to keep it from rebounding on him, he has to continually reassert the kudos. How does he reassert the kudos? Here is a, a, a very telling episode. This is Achilles in the midst of slaughter. Like oxen treading barley on a threshold floor, the sharp-hooved horses of Achilles just so crushed dead men and shields. His axle-tree was splashed with blood, so was his chariot rail, with drops thrown up by wheels and horses' hooves. And Peleus's son kept riding for his glory, kudos, staining his powerful arms with mire and blood. That's where kudos comes from. That is the source of kudos, which is the charisma of triumphant violence. That's the source of kudos, the charisma of triumphant violence. And to the extent that Achilles continues to assert and reassert that, he will be beyond uh, having the scapegoat fall on him. He will, he will safely remove himself from that. And 
he, at the very moment when it looks like, we, got, we have that simile of him being like a lion that everybody's out to kill, at the moment when it looks like subliminally the poem says, hmm, there was that possibility, he reasserts that kudos, the charisma of triumphant violence, and it has to go someplace else to the next available Achilles-like character, and that's Hector. Achilles drives the Trojans to the river, and some rush back to Troy, and half of them go into the river, like uh, like locusts trying to get away from a grass fire, and he just chases them right into the river. Achilles leapt in savagely for bloody work with sword alone, and struck to right and left as cries and groans went up from men he slashed, and dark blood flushed the stream. Vicious stuff. Macbeth said, It will have blood, they say. Blood will have blood. And uh, in that same scene, Macbeth says, All causes shall give way. I am in blood stepped in so far that should I wade no more, returning were as tedious as go o'er. One of the most chilling lines in all of Shakespeare. Wow. He comes to a little episode with Lycaon. Lycaon is a Trojan that he once captured and sent away. Didn't kill him the first time he caught him, sent him away across the sea. Lycaon has managed to get back. And now Achilles sees him again and he says, What's happening? Are these Trojans coming? He says, If this guy is allowed to live, all of these characters I'm killing might come back from the dead. Now Lycaon is without armor, without weapon, no shield, no armor, no helmet, no weapon, absolutely at the mercy of Achilles. He pleads with Achilles. And Achilles' response to him is, as all of these responses from Achilles in this part of the poem, chilling. Young fool, don't talk to me of what you'll barter. In days past before Patroclus died, I had a mind to spare the Trojans, took them alive in shoals and shipped them out abroad. But now there's not a chance. No man that heaven puts in my hands will get away from death before here before Ilion, least of all a son of Priam, like Aeon's a son of Priam. Come, friend, face your death, you too. And why are you so piteous about it? Patroclus died, and he was a finer man by far than you. You see, don't you, how large I am and how well made? My father is noble, a goddess bore me, yet death waits for me, for me as well. In all the power of fate, a morning comes or evening or high noon when someone takes my life away in war, a spear cast or an arrow from a bowstring. So he says, why, what are you complaining about? I'm going to die. Why shouldn't I kill you? You see, it started out, the, the, uh, the unconscious assumption was if, they die, if he dies, I don't have to. Achilles, who has come face to face with death, the way mythology and legend always has the hero come face to face with death, that is to say with the death of his friend, like Gilgamesh. He's come face to face with death. His response is, well, I'm going to have to die. Well, if I'm going to have to die, why don't you all? See? A Camus has a disturbing thing. I think it's in Myth of Sisyphus where he talks about uh, every time we pick up the paper and read of a suicide, we ought to thank God that he didn't go out and, and exercise the freedom he had right before he did that. Chilling, you see. Well, Achilles is exercising it. 
And he summarily and casually slaughters Lycaon and tosses his body equally casually into the river and finally the river rises up, assumes the form of a man and tells Achilles to stop the wanton slaughter and Achilles will hear nothing of it. Well, after Homer heightens the suspense by taking us on a few little uh, uh, tangential excursions, we get the, the main event, which is Achilles and Hector finally meet, preceded by, as I said before, this ritual circling of the wall of Troy three times. Uh, you get the impression, by the way, here... Uh, some of you may have been around when we were doing a study of the Old Testament, the story in Judges where the where Jericho is, uh, the walls of Jericho are brought down. There's a dis distinct impression that the liturgical or uh, ritual, a, a liturgical or ritual enactment of Yahweh's force in handing over Israel's enemy to Israel uh, is being depicted. The ritual precedes the historical story of Jericho so that the so that when they go to the historical story they overlay it with a ritual so that the fall of the walls of Jericho seems like a ritual that a sort of a sort of ancient docudrama where history and ritual are combined well likewise here they circle the walls three times which is the magic preliminary number and then they meet on the fourth circling. As they circle, also an, I think a hint of a ritual-like atmosphere, Homer says, as in a dream, a man chasing another cannot catch him, nor can he in flight escape from his pursuer. That's how it was. It was like a dream that was going on. So it heightens the sense of, the ritual sense of things. The fourth time around, Zeus holds up his golden scale Achilles and Hector, and Hector's side goes down. And Athena, therefore, gets to go take her part in this, of course, which would be the part of Achilles' side. She encourages Achilles, uh, disguises herself as Deiphobus, Hector's brother, and as Deiphobus, she says, Go ahead, Hector, you can do it. And uh, Hector feels that maybe he can and then of course when he gets disarmed he turns to Deiphobus asking for uh, Deiphobus to give him his arms and Deiphobus who is really Athena has long gone and he's left there on his own before it begins remember now this one of the symptoms of the cultural disorder that results in this is that all the forms have gone so there have been several other duels in the poem but they have been duels that have been provided with ritual forms, that is to say agreements about who, who's going to fight and what the terms are and what will happen when it's over and what will be done with the corpses and with the armor and so on and so forth. This is one where there are no rules and that too is a symptom of the, of the crisis. And Hector, who still has psychologically those rules as part of his mentality, he is still a domesticated person a civilized person, he says to Achilles, let's have some ground rules. If Zeus allows me to kill you, I will take your armor, but I will return your body for decent burial. I would ask that you do the same. 
Achilles glares at Hector and says, Hector, I'll have no talk of packs with you, forever unforgiven as you are. As between men and lions there are none, no concord between wolves and sheep, but all hold one another hateful through and through. No agreement. We are totally different species. Now, the irony is exactly the opposite. The irony is that what you see on the battlefield is Achilles squaring off against Achilles' armor. That is to say, at the very moment when Achilles says the difference between them is so radical that they are like lions and men or like wolves and sheep, when he says we couldn't be more different, the irony is that it's Achilles versus Achilles' armor and really what you have is a kind of mirror process happen. At precisely at that moment, Achilles is saying we are utterly different. Here's what Girard says about a similar situation. The antagonist caught up in the sacrificial crisis invariably believe themselves separated by insurmountable differences. In reality, however, these differences gradually wear away. Everywhere we now encounter the same desire, the same antagonism, the same strategies, the same illusion of rigid differentiation within a pattern of ever-expanding uniformity. The grim facts of superpower life. Jard goes on. As the crisis grows more acute, the community members are transformed into twins, matching images of violence. I would be tempted to say that they are each doubles of the other. If violence is a great leveler of men and everybody becomes the double or twin of his antagonist, it seems to follow that all the doubles are identical and that anyone can at any given moment become the double of all the others, that is, the sole object of universal oppression and hatred. You see the stages in which it happens? First of all, there is that division of everybody into their double, their antagonist. And then that is simply a preparatory stage to that recrystallization of the cultural field in which suddenly one person becomes the double for everybody, representing all the hostility for everybody. And that's what's happening here. We're seeing the end of stage one and the beginning of stage two with Achilles and Hector glaring at one another and then we realize that Hector is wearing Achilles' armor and now all the focus is going to come on to Hector. Hector begs for his life and Achilles says, I'll paraphrase, I only wish the gods would drive me far enough into madness that I would eat you alive. Well, he doesn't say a lie. That I would eat you raw. If only the gods would drive me into madness, further into madness, far enough into madness, so that I would eat you raw. That's his response to the plea of Hector. And when he says that, Hector says, I see you now for what you are. And that's the moment of illumination. And who gets the illumination? the victim the victim and he gets it for that brief moment right before he's killed 
the victim suddenly sees the whole thing. I see you now for what you are. And in one person's eyes, the scales fall away. All of the mythologization, all of the cultural overlays, all of the excuses and the alibis, and the everything falls away and he sees Achilles and all he stands for for what it really is. And then he's killed. Even as he spoke, the end came. And death hid him, spirit from body fluttered into undergloom, bewailing fate that made him leave his youth and manhood in the world. Exact same words were used when Hector killed Patroclus about Patroclus. So it's not as though Hector didn't have his coming. But at that moment, he saw the truth of the situation. Now, it might end here. The poem might end here. Uh... As you know, Virgil's poem does end here. Virgil's poem ends when, when Aeneas kills Turnus. But Homer is the great poet, and he takes us beyond this in several different ways. The ritual continues. Imagine the ritual, okay? At this point, he pulled his spearhead from the body, laying it aside, and stripped the blood stained shield and cuirass from his shoulder. Other Achaeans hastened round to see Hector's fine body and his comely face. And no one came who did not stab the body, glancing at one another. They would say, Now Hector has turned vulnerable, softer than when he put the torches to the ships. Okay? And no one came who did not stab the body. And they are becoming a culture again in that act. And you don't have to take my word for it. Because right after that, Achilles says, as they turn to go back to their ships, Achilles says, Men of Achaia, lift a song. How about the national anthem? Men of Achaia, Lift a song, down to the ships we go. First person, plural. And take this body, our glory. First person, plural. We have beaten Hector down. Welcome back to the Greek cultural consensus. No one came who did not stab the body. And after that, as they walk away from that ritual sacrifice, they sing the national anthem and begin talking about their unity. Couldn't be clear. Couldn't be clear. A lesser poet would have been trying to drum up the Greek, sing the praises of the Greek victory. We don't even... He wants to now look at the heartbreak in Troy. First of all, he shows how Achilles is now going to despoil the body. He ties it to the back of his chariot and begins to drive around, uh, dragging the corpse of Hector. And the people looking from the walls of Troy are grieving for their beloved champion. And we see Priam, his father, the king, 
Hecabe the, the queen, Andromache the wife, and Andromache bemourns the fate of their child, Astyanax. We could, all of them are touching. The only one that I'll focus on because it has cultural significance is Andromache. Remember when Hector left to go back in, out into battle? He had no, he saw his life as having no options, but he turned almost as though over his shoulder and he said to Andromache, go back to your loom. All we can hope for now is to do the loom work. So Andromache is in the citadel doing the loom work while this battle's going on. She doesn't even know about it. But Hector's lady still knew nothing. No one came to tell her of Hector's stand outside the gates. She wove upon her loom deep in the lofty house a double purple web with rose design. A funeral color. Already she knows, but with flowers on it. With a flowery pattern. And that's the Andromache who, ha who is the source of cultural hope. She's the one who, earlier on in book six, it said, laughed through her tears. That capacity to understand the pathos and still have some hope for the situation. She wove a double purple web with rose design. Calling her maids in waiting, she ordered a big cauldron of, on a tripod set on the hearth fire to provide a bath for Hector when he came home from the fight. Poor wife. How far removed from baths he was, she could not know. As at Achilles' hands, Athena brought him down. Then from the tower she heard a wailing and a distant moan. Her knees shook, and she let her shuttle fall. It's a very powerful moment in the poem, I think. She let her shuttle fall. We In this poem, we're not allowed to see the fall of Troy, but after that line, we don't need to. And she let her shuttle fall. Now, I think it was Tom Paine. Some of you stout-hearted may correct me on this. I think it was Tom Paine who said the tree of liberty has to be watered with the blood of tyrants. Periodically watered with the blood of tyrants. Now, that's a variant on an ancient and scandalous and sternly repressed fact of cultural life. It is one, by the way, which has a legitimating moral camouflage. It's the tyrant's blood, you see, that we water this tree of liberty with. We keep the cultural order together by choosing the right victim. But you can now see that statement as simply a more modern version of the old story. The cycle is it begins with the lack of being, which gives rise to mimetic rivalry. Which is fine if there are some cultural uh, limitations put on that. But before they exist or once they disappear, and the conventionalized patterns that hold them in check dissolve, consensus breaks down, a crisis of distinctions, the sacrificial crisis, 
and the tribe or cultural order order begins unconsciously to search for the cathartic event, for the victim who will be the focus of that event. And then it is only, ironically, the victim at that last moment who can see the, the pattern for what it is. Hector says, now I see you for what you are. And it is only the victim at that last moment who has the power to reveal it for what it is. Who might be able to say to the persecutors and to the world at large, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then we might take up that comment as the beginning challenge of a whole new phase of human self-understanding. What is it we have been doing if all the distinctions are dissolving and you have a victim who can see it for what it is and say, forgive them for they know not what they do. At that moment, the last distinction falls. And that is the distinction between the victim and the victor. And then you've entered a whole new cosmos. You have opened, you've come out of that cave and you're into another world. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I'm about to be lifted up. And his reference is to that story. I, this is too much to go into today, but it's a reference to that story in Old Testament where Moses holds up the, holds up the bronze serpent, the replica of the serpent that's killing him. See? This is the source of the disaster, the plague, the death that has been bronzed and put on a pole. And when they look at that bronze serpent, they're healed. And the Gospel of John says, the crucifixion is going to be a lifting up so that that will become the visual mantra for the human race in, it, in its gradual awakening about who it is and what it's up to. And also, the sign of contradiction and the sign of, of, a, new, of, of a world released from that constant dynamic of master and slave victor and vanquished. That final one falls and a whole new thing opens out. You know, Northrop Fry says the apocalypse, that the suddenly, you know, the whole world ends. He says the apocalypse it happens at that moment when the distinction between the master and the slave dissolves. And the world, quote-unquote world, meaning culture world, collapses. And one is then in standing in the new light. 